I'm Nadia Cavell. I'm Ben with the Hinks. And I'm Zachary Fall. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. Today we speak with Adam Kashmiri, an Egyptian-born performer, storyteller, and activist based in Glasgow. Since coming to the UK in 2010, Adam has been seen on both stage and screen, including in the Citizens Theatre Community Company and Scottish Refugee Council's production Here We Stay, and short films Ghost Light and Everyman. Adam made his stage debut in Adam, a play inspired by his own life, which won French First and Herald Awards and was shortlisted for Amnesty International's Freedom of Expression Award. He spoke with us about his journey creating his eponymous show and taking it to the screen, the difficult circumstances facing trans folk in Egypt today, and how he has coped during the COVID pandemic. Hi, Adam. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting. Well, we're really excited to talk to you. I know I'm particularly excited having watched Adam, your show on BBC iPlayer at the moment. I know we'll dig into that in a little bit, but it was a really powerful piece of theatre and it's an honour to get to talk to you. Yeah, I second that. I watched it yesterday and I was very moved. It's an incredible piece. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you both for watching it. Pleasure. Well, to kick off, I know that Today, you live in Scotland, where you're speaking to us from now. Can you just give us a bit of a sense of your life there and what you love about the place where you live? Yes, absolutely. So I came over to Britain around 11 years ago. It was actually July 2010. So yeah, just about to start the 12th year now. And I've done a lot of things since I came over here because I've had to learn like way of life in Britain and in Scotland in general. And at the moment, I am a performer and currently experimenting with things like dance and movement, playwright sometimes. I'm also a trans activist. Uh, however, I do my activism at the moment through art more than anything else. But other than that, I enjoy like calisthenics sometimes and going out in parks in Glasgow and just up the hills in Scotland, mm-hmm. especially when the sun is out. I like camping and taking adventures. Try to take it as chill as I can, I suppose. But yeah, I love to also get involved in the community I've got involved in the past few years, like especially the queer community. The queer community is a huge part of my life at the moment and also experimenting with drag, with pals, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, just trying to enjoy life, I guess. And yeah, enjoy my body, the body that I've been building in the last decade to live comfortably and just enjoying being Adam, I guess. <laughs> and you mentioned sort of a number of different performance forms there. And I wondered what your introduction to the world of art and performance was and what element of that initially drew you in? It's a funny story. So I never studied anything creative wise. But in 2012, when I was granted my refugee status after being refused three times, I was advised by someone from the Scottish Refugee Council to go to a voluntary kind of workshops. You know, like Mm -hmm. it was a collaboration between the Citizens Theatre and Scottish Refugee Council. And uh, it was inviting asylum seekers, refugees, or even Scottish people to come together and just create something raw and kind of from their own stories. So that's what I kind of chanced and went to and ended up performing sort of like a four to five minutes monologue at the time, something that I wrote. 
And I didn't know that at the time, but someone very important was watching me, and that was Cora Bissett. She was premiering her show at the time, Glasgow Girls. Hmm. And yeah, she happened to be one of the audience who saw me perform this kind of monologue. She was intrigued by my story and very touched. And I guess what Cora wanted from the very start is to shed more light on the trans community and the issues they're facing. And just, I think since I met Cora, Cora has been an ally and she just wanted to use my story and do something for the trans community. And I guess that was my start, but I wasn't actually going to perform in a play. The Mm. play was written by Francis Poet and it was going to be performed by two performers. One representing kind of like Adam's masculinity or his true essence. And the other side is how Adam is perceived by the world, like his feminine attributes body hmm. and then uh, just to cut it a bit short because it's a long story but anyway, <laughs> I ended up performing in the play eventually and this is kind of how it started everything off for me this is how I learned everything about performing in theaters and yeah it was kind of an intensive training like I had six weeks of rehearsals on the play and throughout those six weeks I think I've tried at least to learn as many things as I can about theater, like theater language, how to memorize scripts, Mm. and just things to do with movement, how to project your voice and how to train your voice. Yeah, it was a huge step for me. But I guess since then, it's opened a huge door for me because I realized that I am such a creative person. I just never realized because how inaccessible my life was or, you know, growing up in a tough environment, I wasn't able to express myself and know what skills I have. For sure. That's what I've been doing since, just experimenting with movement writing, as I mentioned earlier, and just, yeah, trying to see what I can explore with and play with. Mm. That's really wonderful. It sounds like artistic expression is both an opportunity for you to express yourself and your story, but also it is a true expression of you and who you are, and you kind of have that inside you. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you're spot on, Ben. It's played a huge part in expressing who I am. And through art, I am discovering who Adam is because it's a funny one. Throughout the physical transition, you think once you finish your physical transition, that's you sorted. But actually, when I finish my physical transition, I realized that there is me now that I need to find out. Mm. That makes any sense. Mm. I wasn't able to live comfortably before. Mm. So I guess guess that's what's happening. It's like you have to kind of build the inside now as well. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And you've mentioned the kind of rich queer community that exists in Glasgow. And also, I know that there's a really great cultural scene there. And I wondered how you taking part in that other than your own performance and work. Are there venues and performance spaces that you like to visit? Are there other artists that inspire you and who you like to see? Yes, absolutely. So the queer community in Scotland is kind of like central belt focused. Uh, Well, at least at the moment, I know that queer theory and queer sanctuary in Scotland and many other production companies in Scotland would love to kind of branch out more. But what I would like to see personally is just more of my pals' performances, I guess, because I've mm-hmm. I've gone to drag at the start of the pandemic, ironically, but the pandemic, in a sense, gave me the bravery to do it. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just looking forward to doing drag in live spaces, you know, like Nice and Sleazies or anything like uh, in Glasgow clubs for the queer community. And just, yeah, do a live one myself, but also watch my pals do live performances. Mm-hmm. I love the Oasis and I love my pal Nelly Kelly. I love their performances yeah right yeah (laughs) that's really it's really interesting what you said about getting into drag at the beginning of the lockdown period because i know of a few people for whom 
they've moved into different performance modes and are trying different things out. It feels like a really, so there've been a lot of downsides, like in some respects, a really great opportunity to just experiment and try out things that you might normally do because you've got a bit more privacy, I guess, to explore those things. I think you're very right, Ben. Like you also mentioned in a huge way, the pandemic has been devastating, obviously, on so many people. But I think in other respects, what I've heard also from people that it has been, the pandemic also gave the opportunity to some people to kind of slow down and look at their life and see what they really would like to do uh, and explore more. Mm. So you've mentioned the queer community and the kind of performance community in the Central Belt. Obviously, it's a big question, but how do you think the British theatre industry in general is bearing in terms of representation of LGBTQ plus and migrant communities? I wondered just if you have a sense of kind of how those identities sit within the industry, if you like. Well, I think... The conversation has definitely been on for a while about the lack of representation from minority groups such as trans people or LGBTIQ in general or migrant issues. And I mean, in some ways it has improved, but I feel like it's only some companies that are taking care of this problem. I don't feel Mm -hmm. like as a collective, I don't feel like the industry as a whole all over the UK is working together to create this inclusive maybe casting or inclusive environment for work Mm. it's kind of like isolated incidences or situations rather than a kind of collective progress yeah and it feels sometimes that some people are hiring like minority groups just to tick a box but they're not Mm. involved in the problem and they're not like wholeheartedly want to be part of the solution if that makes any sense Mm. yeah yeah but i don't know like things are improving and i'm always feeling that things are improving but perhaps maybe not as fast as you would hope yeah but yeah i've definitely like i'm gonna be honest with you i feel my frustration sometimes because for example i would like to do parts in theater or film that are not migrant or trans related like i do want to represent trans characters but that's not all of me like Mm. My trans identity is not all of me and it's definitely not all of my career either. Like it's something that I can do and I definitely should do because I'm a trans person. I should represent my community. But, you know, the trans community or minority groups should also get at least a small opportunity, maybe not huge, but at least just another opportunity to do other parts. Like, you know, just be a guy in, I don't know, a comedy series or something or, you know, whatever. But it's just something that doesn't depend on my trans identity and kind of explores what else I've got to offer as a performer. Mm. Yeah, So I think I would love to see more kind of inclusive castings, I think. Yeah, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, people we speak to and people from marginalized identities and particularly the intersection of those identities often talk about like having to make their own work and having to pave their own way because there just isn't that work out there or there isn't the kind of institutional backing. And what you're talking about makes so much sense because we see all the time, for instance, trans roles being taken by non-trans actors. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That's changing a bit, I guess. But if that's been the norm for decades, why shouldn't we be giving trans actors more diverse roles? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. If all performers are allowed and do get the chance to be anything, even perform trans characters, then we should, I think, have the same kind of opportunities, I guess. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. 
And do you audition or try to audition for those sorts of roles? I'm wondering, like, do casting directors, when they're looking at a role, like, look to the trans community to cast those sorts of roles, do you think? I'm not sure. I mean, recently I did audition for two things that were not trans-related, or three things. Mm. Yeah. And that's really positive. That's really amazing. And I would love to get, like, more opportunities like that. But I don't know how casting directors approach it, if I'm honest with you. Like, I don't know if that's something they have in mind, or maybe there is, like, some guideline that they need to go by to ensure that they are providing opportunities for all people of all abilities and race and everything. Mm. Yeah. Do you think there's an appetite to cast migrants in roles that weren't specifically written or designed specifically for them? Well, I'm not really sure. To be honest, I don't know if that's something even in their mind. Mm. Yeah. Or, you know, when they do cast a migrant in a generic role, I don't know if that's like an accident that happened Mm. Or is that something that, you know, the casting directors or the producers or whoever was involved saying like, you know what, actually I'm determined to cast a person of whatever in this role. Like, I'm not quite sure if I'm honest with you. Yeah, yeah. But I feel there would be an appetite to see like, or at least I personally have the appetite to see different faces. Mm. Because when you see the variations of representation on TV, it's much less boring. Yeah. If that makes any sense, you're just getting a diverse portrayal of the life you're living. Mm. If it's all kind of the same storyline and the same characters and the same thing, I quite frankly get bored Mm. because I just don't see it as representative of the life that I am interacting with. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a sense of what your answer might be for this based on what you said about your activism existing through your art. But do you feel that theatre and art in general really has the power to shift mentalities and generate societal change? Yes, yes, yes. Hundred million percent. Yes, <laughs> it has. I believe it's one of the best ways, I feel, to communicate information, feelings, uh, compassion without being forceful. Because politics, I hate politics. I really do. Mm. And I try to do activism through, you know, like the, the political kind of way of doing it. And it's just, I couldn't. It's so forceful. It's got overwhelming. Like, it's got a lot of information. It just doesn't feel accessible for all brains. And you feel like there's just so much to read and not so much to follow. And Mm. so many people argue and it can really get confusing. While with art and theater, it's all about the point, the point that matters, that comes across. And I've had those conversations too many times where literally people like so ever kindly started the conversation with me and expressed on like how the play, for example, Adam or the film have changed their perspective Mm. towards the trans community or migrant issues or asylum seeker issues. Right. And I guess that's when I really realized like, wow, I am making a difference with this work. And I think maybe that's when I decided to stop getting involved through the political kind of way of doing things and just be focused on art and doing things through art or different forms of art. Mm. It's just so powerful. It's all about emotions. We're humans. And once you get the emotion across, that's us connected and compassionate towards each other and understanding, you know? Mm -hmm, For sure. So you've already spoken about Here We Stay, which was produced by the Citizens Theatre Community back in 2012. And in between 2012 and 2017, when you debuted Adam with the National Theatre of Scotland, 
Can you take us through that period a little bit more, perhaps, and tell us how you ended up playing the part of Adam in the play yourself? And yeah, just the development process of the play. So I performed a wee monologue, and that was it. I had a conversation with Cora, but we didn't speak after that conversation for about two years or a year and a half. And because I just gained my refugee status at the time, I was just given the permission to work. So I was overwhelmed with just a lot of like, I needed to find job. Mm. I needed to move into a place of my own, get furniture and just, I don't know, learn how to live and, you know, council tax and rent. And I don't know, right, just yeah, learn yeah, how yeah. to live, you know, how to function and stuff. Yeah. So I kind of got really busy with that. I got a job in KFC and it was a full-time job and it, I think I was practically living in KFC for four years. <laughs> yeah. It really did consume my life for a while, but it did teach me a lot also. So much, actually. Because <laughs> mm. I think that was my first proper full-time job in the UK. I had other jobs before, uh, but they were kind of casual and not really consistent. But with KFC, it was kind of full-time. Right. Because I was a team leader, so I got trained in so many areas, and I just to gain experience in just how to be a manager, how to be a team leader, how to manage a restaurant, but mm. also like skills just for work in general. Mm. I don't know, it just want me to be a little bit or- more organized and be <laughs> a functional human, I guess. It put me in a routine. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, Koda got in touch with me. That was two years after I started KFC, telling me about the fact that she got funding for the play. And I was like, oh my God, I thought you forgot about it. You know, I thought, <laughs> you know, that was an interest two years ago and that's it. But no, actually she was working on this idea and trying to get funding all this time, which is amazing. And yeah, so I met with Cora and the writer and I've spoke with Francis a lot. And this is how Francis wrote the play through my own story, but also adding some fictional bits in between. Mm-hmm. just to kind of round it up, make it also a bit more inclusive. And that was a request of mine also. Mm. Right. But anyway, so two years after that, like I mentioned earlier, they were looking for two performers and they managed to found um, performer uh, Nishla Kaplan to represent one side of Adam. But they were struggling to find someone to represent the masculine side of Adam because Cora was really keen to hire a trans performer who was also from an ethnic minority within mm. the UK, which at the time, if I remember, that was quite hard to find. So they spent quite some time auditioning people and trying to find a suitable performer for the role. But I was talking to my pal about this and my pal was like, why don't you do it? It's your story. Who's better than, you know, doing it than you? And you've tried performing before and you loved it. So why don't you do it? And at the time I was like, oh no, no, this is, is going to be like a big play. No, I'm not a performer. Like I was never trained. Come on, you want to put me on, on, on a stage? I'm going to pee myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, eventually, I think it did play in my mind a little bit because I feel like a week later, I text Cora and I was like, hey, Cora, I've got this crazy idea, but just listen to me. I'm thinking of auditioning. Like, can I please audition for the part? But I didn't want Cora to kind of like feel pressured that, oh, my God, like the real right. auditioning for Adam, I must hire him. I wanted to take some of that pressure off. Mm. Yeah. Because I didn't even trust my own abilities at the time. So I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so kindly agreed to give me a chance to audition. And I did attend the audition. And it was Cora and Francis that saw my audition. They said they loved the audition, but they're concerned about my mental health. Mm. They were just scared how getting involved in my past traumas, how would that affect me? 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we met again for another week of development, and that's when I met everyone in the team. And I met Neshla Kaplan, the other performer also. I met with the dance movement and everyone, literally. And we spent a week together just playing and working on it. It was a second draft at the time. And by the end of that week, yeah, I got the go on. I'm going to be doing Adam and Adam. So, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I know. And four months later, I quit my job and just jumped right in rehearsals. <laughs> Terrific. Wow. And so that means during those weeks, you yourself felt comfortable as well. You felt it was a safe enough space to explore all that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, I had no idea what to expect. I had never been in a proper play before. Mm. Mm. I mean, the only monologue I had performed at the time was written by me and it was in a really small theater. And, you know, it mm. was just a totally different scene from that. So I had no expectations whatsoever. And I guess that, that week showed me that I can handle myself. Mm -hmm. I am creative because I discovered that I'm good with movements even in that first week. Thanks to Janice. Bless her, she passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. But mm. she played a huge part in motivating me to grow my abilities within movement. But yeah, I guess that week gave me an idea of what was coming ahead and it excited me. I wanted to get involved for sure. Fantastic. You, you caught the bug. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, no, 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 you can't tell me no now. I'm, I'm yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So before that, after having done that monologue, you weren't interested in pursuing acting as a career. No, it's like, you know what? Performing in Here We Stay has always crossed my mind because I loved it, every bit of it. The process of it, the performance, being with audience in one room. Yeah, it really ignited me that night. Mm. But because I was just so burdened with so many other things, I was so focused on developing my abilities and my CV kind of, like I wanted to put things on my CV, if I'm honest with you. My yeah, CV yeah. was completely empty. I, I never finished university. I had little work experience and it was all in Egypt. So, you know, I came here literally with a blank page and I wanted to prove that I can do stuff. Yeah. I didn't know what stuff I could offer even then because I wasn't myself. I wasn't in my body as a trans person. Like it's perhaps maybe in the last two years that I was fully able to explore my abilities comfortably. It's really mm. strange, actually. When you don't have your body, you're just not whole. And I, I can't explain that. I thought I was whole at the time. But now I'm looking back and I'm like, no, nah. I was like maybe 20% of Adam. I was very overwhelmed. Yeah. But it's funny that way when you don't see it at the time, but you just get to learn about it a bit later. In retrospect, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had so many surgeries at the time. I was also doing my physical transition. Mm. My body was changing and I was having like big surgeries that were also slowing me down quite a bit. Mm. Mm. Right. And, and working out, working out was a huge part of my life too because I wanted to change my body. So yeah, I had so much at the time that it was hard to think of pursuing something else. I didn't even feel confident to quit my job at KFC because I didn't feel like I would get another. You know, when you're insecure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, that's really interesting and totally understandable. Well, could you tell us about the life of the play? Could you tell us about its reception when you first started performing it and you even ended up performing in New York City? What was it like performing it in these different spaces, different places? Oh, that was amazing. It was <laughs> amazing. I mean, 
to answer the first part of the question, the reception of the play was completely surprising to me because I, for some reason, thought that when I do it and especially perform in it as the person, you know, as the story is about, I thought I was going to be attacked from all kinds of people and places and sources. Mm-hmm. And right. I just had a really negative kind of outlook. To it. But I was like, oh, it's fine. I just got to do it. I got to put my voice out there. And, you know, you try to convince yourself to do something. But actually, I didn't get any of that hate I expected. But not at all. Perhaps the only hate I got was uh, online, but never in person or never during a live performance. Mm. So quite frankly, when we premiered the show and during the Fringe in Edinburgh 2017, oh my God, the reception was overwhelmingly amazing. And just people were... Oh, I, I can't find the words, but people were really, really just so open and so compassionate and so lovely to just come and start a chat with me and express how they felt about the play and mm. how it might have made them feel or how it might have changed how they think. The reception was absolutely amazing and humbling. And as for visiting different theatres, that was a very exciting part. Like, I mean, we went to London, Brighton, Edinburgh, Glasgow. We've done a lot of little tours. Dundee and then New York was the last one we finished the stage version on. And it was so glamorous. Some of them were, were glamorous, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> I've got to meet amazing, amazing groups of people like NTS, National Theatre Scotland, took part and organized school visits. So like groups of students would come and see the play. And then afterwards, we'll kind of sit with them for about like, I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half, depending on the event. And then mm. we'll just sit on chat and it's very informal, very chill. We're all sitting on the floor, you know, like with everyone that came and watched us and from young ages. And we'll have that chat and honestly, amazing, amazing young folk. And yeah, I've had the pleasure to meet with so many people through Adam. And that was a huge, Amazing. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Were there any differences in the conversations you had after the show, depending on where you were? Could you sense any major differences depending on those different areas? Oh, that's a good question. Well, definitely there was, because because in the play, there are some kind of humor and jokes and references to things in Scotland and in Glasgow and things about the language and the weather and Channel 5 and things like that. Right. Mm. So I think, yeah, there were some comments that were definitely missed in New York. Definitely. Right. But what else? I can't recall any specific conversations at the moment. So I would say no, maybe. Mm. Right. I can't think of anything right now. God, I could be wrong, but at the moment, it's a no. (laughs) Sure, sure. I mean, that shows that there is such a universality, in a way, to your story that everyone could relate to. Absolutely. Actually, Nadia, that is so right. That's a really good observation. Because actually, there is something I have noticed. And that was people of like not necessarily trans or LGBTIQ background, but people relating to some parts of the story from kind of the home aspect point of view, or maybe family relations point of view. Like I've had people, you know, reference some parts in the play that weren't trans or asylum seeking related. Mm -hmm. And this is when I realized that the play wasn't only connecting with trans people. It had the potential to connect with different people. Mm. So you're so right, Nadia. Yeah. Yeah, I very much felt that watching it yesterday because, you know, I had to kind of go up against my family to pursue an artistic career. And it was 
it caused a lot of pain and, and trauma. And mm -hmm. of course, you know, I don't want to compare things that are incomparable, but there was definitely things in your play that I could tap into on a personal level. And I think that speaks to its power and its universality. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I think also for me, just the ending of the filmed version mm. just really creates this sense of community being something that isn't to do with borders, isn't to do with mm. any one identity. And I just love the way that ends. And it's so powerful. And I think so many people can relate to that kind of idea. Yeah. It was expressed you know, the way you found to express that is one of the most powerful ways I've seen. So yeah, I was in tears. Oh, bless you, bless you. Thank you so much. I can't take the credit for the ending or the film or the play all by myself, to be honest, because I have worked with an amazing group of people, honestly, mm. like Francis, amazing Francis Poet, who wrote Adam and Cora Bissett, who directed the play, but also Cora is the person that created the idea and worked to get the funding and to make the idea happen in the first place. And also Cora played a huge part and helped me also with becoming a performer. I don't know. I guess I'd never went to school or uni. Mm -hmm. I feel like Cora Bissett was my university. She just taught so yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I genuinely can't take credit for everything because it was definitely a work of a group of people. Mm. They've been so generous and put their heart and soul into it and created something absolutely beautiful. The choir is absolutely amazing. Also, I don't know about you, but mm. watching the choir in the middle and at the end of the play every time literally gave me goosebumps. And I'm like, I know this. I've watched <laughs> it three times, but it still affects me. Yeah, I was like. God, he's really holding it together. What a great actor. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was in floods of tears. So yeah. It was created and sung beautifully by 140 members, trans and non-binary people from all around the world, which is amazing. Incredible. Yeah. Really incredible. And all came together in their own spaces and recorded bits of music in their own spaces and sent it to National Theatre Scotland. And Yana was all put together for the show. Yeah. So joyous. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I was curious to know, was the choir a pre-existing choir or were they found specifically for the performance? No, so they were found very specifically for the performance. So Pura had this idea. I think she watched something on TEDx or something like that. And she was inspired by a global choir that was created by someone else. And forgive me, I can't remember that person's name that Cora was inspired by. Mm. But anyway, that inspired Cora to create something similar for Adam. And it's because there is this moment in the film or the play where Adam, you know, thinks he's crazy. He thinks that he's just the only one in the world that feels that he's got the soul of a man inside a woman's body. And then, you know, at the very low moment of his life, when he's literally lost everything and his life is in danger, yeah, literally got nothing else to lose, so why not kind of moment. Mm. So he types on Google, can the soul of a man be trapped in the body of a woman? Really not expecting an answer, but it's just so low, you might as well kind of thing. And that was the moment where the internet kind of flooded back with all the information, people on YouTube recording the changes. And yeah, just overwhelming amount of nice information, though. Not overwhelming, but mm. overwhelmingly good. Like, I'm not crazy. I exist. And there are millions of people like me out there. Mm. And I guess Koda wanted to kind of really give it the space it needs. Mm. And so she kind of put the two together and 
sort of inspired the creation of this global trans choir for the performance. And yeah, and it was just members of the National Theatre Scotland all together working together to create a safe platform online, inviting trans and non-binary people to come and talk together. It was kind of like a Facebook, but a very private Facebook <laughs> for people to feel safe and come together and chat about this. And later on, many people connected together after the performance. I'm connected with also a lot of people from the choir. So just all together, it was a very positive experience. Mm. Uh- And when Adam was adapted to that theatrical on-screen drama, what was that experience like? Was it very different from, obviously, doing the stage play? And also, can you tell us how that idea came to be to make it into a filmed performance? So when Adam went on stage and premiered on the stage in Edinburgh during the Fringe, there were some people that expressed interest in having the play tour and everything, but also the idea of having a film came out there and then. Oh, okay. I think I've heard about Adam possibly becoming a film maybe at the start of 2018. So it was quite a while ago. Mm. But then the team of National Theatre Scotland, I feel like they've been working since, you know, deal with the technicalities that I don't usually get to deal with, like finding funding, funders, Mm. yeah, the right platform and everything of that sort. Mm. But in terms of if it was different or not, or how different it was, it definitely was different in so many ways. On a personal level, I would say, so in the play, we are two performers. We are performing our side of Adam, but we're also portraying other characters and Adam's life. Mm. So Nishla, for example, Nishla, and then later on, it was also played by Hannah McDonald. So both of them played the feminine, the perceived side of Adam, the mom, mental health nurse, and Tony, mm-hmm. also a person in my life then. And then me, when I did my masculine side, I did that Adam, but I also did my dad. Mm. And I did a dodgy person on the street who ends up doing something really bad to Adam. You know, I did a few other characters. So when I did my dad in the play, it was all done from my own perspective, which I found so intriguing when I got to work with an actual performance mm. yeah. screen. And my dad was no longer done by me. I was just doing Adam. So that's the difference between the theater and the film. In the film, I'm just doing Adam. And we had amazing, brilliant performers, each doing their own character. Mm. Mm. And just seeing like the dad, it definitely changed my perspective. And my reaction as a performer to it, I feel. Mm. It was much more intense. Because in the play, I never really got to react. Yeah. yeah. I just got to be the dad. I got to be the horrible kind of person. But in the film, I got to feel Adam's reactions. Yeah. Mm. How it felt for him. And I guess I never felt it before. So that was really intriguing for me mm. to find that difference. Live performance is exhilarating in a sense. And you have like this part of your day that gives you adrenaline, but then you finish it and that's it. While with screen, it's a whole day of repetition and waiting around and I don't know, <laughs> doing, doing things um, differently, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> to screen, but these are my observations so far. There's a lot of waiting around. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, there is. Yeah. There definitely is. <laughs> yeah. Set life. Yeah. Lots of waiting. And then go cry. Okay. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I guess also in the play, you get to do it once in a day and that's it. But also repeating intense scenes is, is a little difficult, I guess. Mm. You're like, sometimes you just want to do it once and not go through that emotion again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's what acting is. You know, you just got to train yourself and protect yourself and build these walls and just do what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, very true. And 
There have been many social and political shifts in the years since you first started working on Adam until today, even starting developing the project. And do you feel there were any changes in people's reactions to the projects or in your own approach to the projects, perhaps? I'm definitely feeling like people are more receptive to the queer community with mm-hmm. all its diversities, in a sense. I feel the reaction from audiences have been sort of consistent, mm-hmm. but on a kind of global or rather political side, it has definitely shifted for the trans community. So when I first did the play in 2017, I definitely felt huge optimism for the trans community because it felt like things were moving forward and positively. Mm. But then sadly, a couple of years ago, things do feel like they are going backwards now in terms of like basic rights for the trans community. There is a huge talk about bathrooms and toilets. Oh God, yeah. And I'm like, what is going on? Why are we talking about toilets again? Like I thought we've literally, we did move on. It's not that I felt we did move away from that point. You know, we progressed ahead and then somehow we were taken right back to these problems again. Mm. It's just, it's too stagnant at the moment. It's very stagnant. Mm-hmm. So in addition to your stage work, you've also started doing some screen work, appearing in the short films Ghostlight and Every Man. Yeah. I'm interested in knowing, is screen work something you are also now aspiring towards? And what was it like working on other people's projects after spending so many years on Adam, the play? It was actually really exciting to be doing something different. I was so psyched. I was like, oh my God. I mean, I love Adam and everything, but I was just, you can imagine my excitement of wanting to do something different after a few years. (laughs) (laughs) But I think working on the screen in general has been amazing. I've really enjoyed it, mostly because I knew nothing. So it's an entirely new area to explore and learn how cameras work and how you know acting behind the screen works Mm. so at the moment it's consuming me it's everything that i'm learning about right now i've done another two short films one called who i am who is currently in production and hopefully will be out at the end of this year it was done by bomb 2 productions and also i've done another short film for standing tall arts and it was for refugee week which i'm really psyched to see actually Mm. yeah so i'm really psyched to be doing different stories different characters because it also helps me grow as a human. I'm really intrigued. Like I've been studying psychology on my own for about nine, 10 years now. Mm-hmm. It's just personalities and exploring different characters and why people think the way they do. It really have always intrigued me. And I guess performing allows me to explore that from a first point of view perspective, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I might be biased in the way I do it, and it's not useful then for my studies, but <laughs> it's been really exciting. Yeah. And I just can't wait to do more and more and just keep learning and meeting new folk. It's just been amazing. amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You're also a public speaker and a trans activist, like you said, and you even appeared on TED Talk. Yeah. Could you tell us more about this work and how you first started doing it? I think since I performed in Adam, so many different people and people from different organizations and companies came out to see Adam during the Fringe. And that kind of, I don't know, I I think it's really all thanks to Adam, like the play. I think it started the conversation for me with a lot of people. Mm. And through that, just people coming to me and saying, hey, Adam, we would really love to have you and just speak about your own experiences and things like that. I'd be like, yeah, sure. I'm, you know, really chill. And I didn't think of a reason to say no. So I did it. And this is how I discovered like how, hey, 
I can do like inspirational speeches. Mm. I can go to organizations or companies and talk about things. So I guess this is how I discovered it. It was sort of by accident. But yeah, it's been lovely actually going to different companies. Like I've done some things like Morgan Stanley and Trans Alliance Scotland or Bank TSB. Like I've done third sector and companies and it's been enriching experiences, I think. I've had different conversations and it, yeah, it was insightful to see how people connected also with my story or at least the brief version of it mm-hmm. that I told during my speeches. As for TEDx, oh, that was crazy. That was crazy. I was so <laughs> nervous. I went, you know, the morning of the performance and I'm walking across the seats going to the stage and I'm talking to the person that was kind of showing me around and I'm looking down. I'm like, oh, hey, how many seats are there? Like, you know, making conversation, I'm kind of curious. I'm seeing a lot of seats. So um, <laughs> okay, well, we've got a thousand down here and then we've got a thousand up there and I'm like oh, oh wow my <laughs> that was perhaps my biggest one then to have like 2,000 audience members but also know that it would be seen with much more people online so I was really nervous you can imagine my nerves then I was like oh my god I'm gonna yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as I went on the stage thankfully the nerves were gone and I just I don't know I acted with like people's energy and just went for it and I loved it actually yeah yeah because I watched it and you seem really comfortable like you were born to do that (laughs) yeah Yeah, Yeah. like no nerves in sight I guess I should just learn I'm always nervous before I do any live performance yeah (laughs) is nervous like that's what the job is about and if you're not nervous then there's something wrong yeah the day you're not nervous is when you need to start worrying absolutely (laughs) yes So I guess it's really good that I've been very, very nervous all these times. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Apparently, the physiological effects of nervousness and excitement are exactly the same. So you just need to tell Mm. yourself it's excitement. And then your mind kind of catches up with where your body is. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. You're so right. It's all about perspective. Literally, everything in life is all about perspective. Mm. And I think this is why I'm so intrigued in the power of mind. Like, I do personal studies in terms of psychology, but I've kind of... Branching out more, like I took a hypnotherapy course to become a Mm. therapist and help people with hypnotherapy. Mm. But I did take the course, but I didn't get the chance to actually do become a hypnotherapist, but I used the practice in my own kind of life. And I've just learned so much about how everything is so perspective related. Mm. And I don't know if that's making any sense, but Mm, it's physiological yeah it's excitement and nerves and you just need to tell your brain which one it is Mm-mm. and this is exactly what it is it's perception you just constantly need to be guiding your perception i guess yeah mm. so i know that egypt where you're originally from is a difficult place for trans people to live in to say the least and that the LGBTQ plus community faces many challenges today if you could maybe touch on some of those for those who might be unaware yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, growing up in Egypt as a trans person was very horrible. And because I feel I have told that through my own work and story so many times, I would like to shed some light on how it is for trans people through someone else's story. Mm. So thanks to the play and its publications, I've got to do some articles for BBC. And because of that, trans people from the Middle East, different places within the Middle East, like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Morocco, a lot of places, I guess, gave me the opportunity to connect with people over there. 
And one of those people that got in touch with me roughly was last November. So he's a trans man growing up in Egypt. I feel like he's been a prisoner all of his life. Mm. Uh, his dad has got undiagnosed or untreated mental illness. And he says schizophrenia. He imagines a lot of things. Yeah. And because of that, he's been beating him up since he was a kid. Literally breaking teeth, head injuries. Oh, just wow. really awful things that shouldn't be happening to a kid, teenager. It's just any humans in general. And that's without him knowing that he is trans. This is like, this is when it gets really complicated. But I guess subconsciously, he's maybe releasing all this anger on my friend. His name is John. Obviously, because John is a trans man, he's not doing what they expecting of him, behaving as a female or in a feminine way. And, yeah. But also in his teenage years, he confided in his mom and his brother that he's a trans person. Yeah. Thinking that they would help him and take the pressure off him a little bit. But what they did is they stopped him from going out, disconnected him from all of his social circles <laughs> at a very early age, around 15, 14, something like that. Stopped him from going to school for a few years and blackmailed him. This is really, really to even describe it, but they've blackmailed him to kind of be their servant. Oh my God. And if he refuses to do anything, they threaten that they will tell his dad. And, you know, getting to know John and everything, I've asked him this question. What do you think will happen if they did tell your dad? And he said, oh, he'll beat me to death. I'm sure of it. He almost did it before. Mm -hmm. I know it's, this is when it gets really real. And I'm like, oh, my God. So throughout talking with him the last seven months, well, I've noticed also that he's been conditioned very negatively to think so many awful things about himself. Mm. This bright boy, if not even boy, man, he's 24 years old, but he's never had a life. Yeah. So he's so young and sheltered and blackmailed and negatively conditioned to just think that he's literally worthless. And uh, there's just so many twists within that story. It's really complicated. He's finally started his education back. He's now going through his last year of university, which is amazing. Mm. But he's not been going to lectures or anything. He studies on his own mm. at home, and they only allow him to go outside during the exams. But anyway, his last year is this one, and his last exam is in the 7th of July. Like this year, literally. And after that, he is planned to be married to his cousin, planned marriage. Literally, oh my God. for a trans man, it can't really get any worse than that. It's just mm-hmm. like living this life and just being handed off to be raped like that. This is just like, I don't, anyway, so sorry to make this long, but it's actually really important. And I feel quite passionately about finishing the story. So he got in touch with me. He decided to create a GoFundMe page and kind of sort of help himself because literally he's got no one, no no sort of support, no friends, nothing. And he found someone to help him with the GoFundMe page. And then we started talking and helped him with a few things. And at the moment, he hasn't gathered enough money to leave on the 7th of July because that's the end of his exams. Mm-hmm. So if people in any way could jump on my Facebook page, or even if you could post a link to his GoFundMe page, because if he doesn't leave at the end of his exams, he will be married off and that's it. I will not hear from John again and he will disappear to nothingness, literally. Mm. Oh my goodness. This is one of the stories that I have heard. One of them. This is not everything. This is the story for everyone. And this is why I left and this is why I'm here. Because if I didn't leave, I would have been dead, raped or just tortured. Horrible things I don't want to really think about, if that makes any sense. 
yeah. worry I've made it a wee bit intense, but no. it is. No, don't. You know what I mean? It's really intense. Yeah. So that would be really amazing of you guys, and you would be helping so much. Literally, you'd be helping to save a life. Thank you so much. No, yeah, of course. Sure. We'll definitely do for that. Sure. So shifting gears slightly, but obviously we have just been through a pandemic, which has turned our lives upside down to say the least how have you been doing over the past 18 months how have you kept busy and sane and how have you been faring through it all <laughs> it's been awful i'm gonna be honest with you. yeah it's been awful in so many ways mm-hmm. but then it has been awful for everybody else and god i don't even know how i've survived out what i've done but my circumstances were a bit crazy because i moved to london just before the pandemic started and then three months later i moved back up to scotland mm-hmm. also before pandemic started I didn't even know that the corona was a thing that is about to happen and I was contracted like just signed the contract to do a four months tour with a play and it was amazing it was a lead role you know so I came back to Scotland staying with my pal you know only staying for a couple of weeks because I'm gonna start this tour and I'm gonna find my room and you know things were gonna work out and stuff but <laughs> only to find that like, the entire country shutting down and I'm just stuck with my pal and there's no work. I've got no home of my own. And I ended up being, I'm going to say homeless, but I haven't slept on the street, but just not having a a comfort of my own. And Mm. I just moved from one pal to another and then rented a room and that didn't work out. I moved into another pal. I have moved like eight times in the last 18 months, which really, Uh. yeah, really, I think played with my mind a little bit. (laughs) I've just Months ago, in my own accommodation, so I don't know what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to give a rest to my brain because the lack of settling my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, when you move a lot and you're just not giving your brain a moment to sit down and be like, okay, this is my place, this is my space. I can let go and relax. I haven't had the chance to do that for 18 months, so I guess I'm learning to uncover and unravel that experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, like because of my mental health issues that helped me be more creative which is really odd but it really did and it helped me kind of work with my movements and with my dance skills quite a lot and discover Mm. things inspired me with projects that I really want to do hopefully really soon in the future Mm. to do especially with movements you know it's horrible but there is always something to learn from a horrible dip or when your mental health goes down yeah, hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, yeah. yeah, it may be slower than we hoped, but it does feel like we are coming out, hopefully into a slightly better world yeah. that remains to be seen. But let's keep our fingers crossed. That's a really good point. You said that that, that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling really positive, actually, about coming out of the pandemic, because like we mentioned earlier, the pandemic, as horrible as it was, did provide some food for thought, like they say to everyone a few mm-hmm. and there was this talk about how did we let ourselves live the way we did and now we need change and there has been a change to accommodate obviously the pandemic and people getting back together in small places but it feels like maybe some people are rushing back to normality or what used to be normal yeah. before and i'm like wait yeah don't waste all this effort all this pain All this, you know, the experience was hard on everyone and all of us. And it's so sad to see it not be worth the while, if you know what I mean. If everything just rushes Mm. back to how it was, fast and furious and not inclusive and not, Mm. not a lot of things for people, you know? 
Fast mm. and furious is such a good phrase for it. Yeah. 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 And Adam, so the word migrant encompasses such a diversity of experience and background, but this is something we love asking our guests if they feel, if you feel that there is nonetheless amongst all that diversity, some sort of common denominator or, or shared experience amongst all migrants. I think a shared experience amongst all migrants would be... Well, I suppose like dislocating home is a huge thing. And I think that's maybe, but it's not just migrants, to be honest, because I mean, you can grow up, I don't know, in London, for example, and then choose to move away to, I don't know, Manchester or even Scotland. Mm. Would you call yourself a migrant then? Or yeah, But would that be considered the same thing? Because you've left the home you grew up in and created a home that is entirely different. Mm. So I guess it all depends on what we define as migration or... Yeah, yeah. And speaking of home, Adam, what comes to mind or what comes to heart when I say that word, home? Home is, oh, that's a really excellent question because that's uh, that's kind of been my pain, but also exploration for that since I left Egypt. I've just been trying to also find what makes a thing home because I didn't feel home for a long time. But that's not all to do with where I am. It was a big chunk of it was to do with how I felt about my own body. And I had to feel home within myself first Mm -hmm. to feel home where I was. And I feel that once I felt home within myself, I was... So for me, identity played a huge part. But also what made home is finding people of mutual compassion and respect and thinking, I guess. Community, yeah. Yeah, the community, yeah. That's the word, Nadia, community. Finding the community here is what makes something feel home. Because I was in Egypt and that was supposedly my home, but I didn't feel at home, not even one bit. I did not find respect, compassion, or understanding from almost everyone. So it was a very hostile environment. While here, I have people that are so compassionate, so understanding. They want to know me and they're happy to listen. And that is beautiful and gives me the, mm. the feeling of yeah i'm home i'm finally here you that's know? wonderful so maybe home is where compassion is yeah and right now it's compassion and respect and yeah. i don't know all these amazing things i'm finding here in scotland and i've got an amazing community here and yeah yeah and speaking of scotland and identity how has it affected your sense of identity living in scotland and coming into your own in scotland we like to ask our guests you know what they feel in your case is the most scottish and the least scottish thing about you (laughs) i probably say we too much now (laughs) right yeah (laughs) We buy this this wee thing, uh, whatever. <laughs> but the least Scottish thing, God, probably a lot of things since I am Egyptian. <laughs> you know what? It's really hard to differentiate between my two identities now. And thanks to my pa, Rahana, she gave me a name, and that's Ejiwiji. And I think the best. <laughs> awesome actually how she came up with that it's amazing (laughs) and I've clinged on to that term because I feel like it's a fair representation of my identity there are things that are Egyptian about me but there are also things that are so Scottish about me Mm. I mean I complain about weather all the time but I hate hot weather when it's for too long also like I'm Egyptian but I don't really tolerate heat for that long like I hate it (laughs) I miss it when it's not out for a long time but 
equally I don't want to live in a whole country either yeah 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 I don't know there is just so it's so mixed now it's hard to tell the difference what's Scottish and what's Egyptian you know it's just like <laughs> this hybrid identity that's beautifully contradictory yeah. right yeah absolutely Actually, I'm also trying to embrace that I have two identities because when I was younger, I was a wee bit of a moaner. I was like, oh, am I Egyptian? Am I Scottish? Like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Oh, <laughs> you know, I was like being so funny. I'm like, dude, come on. You've got people that love you. Like you grew up in a place where you've gained culture and insight to what that is about. You know the language. You can speak it, read it, whatever. And you're also living in another community where you get to speak another language and get to understand different things about another community and half people there also that love you. Like, this is amazing. Why is there to moan about? I've got two identities rather than one. So it's about embracing them, I guess. It's all perspective. Yeah, but you know, I can understand that it's challenging because I think we still live in a world which is kind of very monolithic and just kind of likes to box people in one box. And True. when you don't True. really fit one very well-defined box, you can feel very othered. Very true. But you're completely right. You're completely right. We must embrace the hybridity. Yeah. We must embrace our diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And Adam, just to finish, we just want to know what your hopes are for the future, both professionally and personally. My hopes... I definitely hope that I want the world to be a little kinder. Yeah. I just, I have this unrealistic vision of what the world should be like, but I just, it's hard to explain. When we see our differences or the differences in each other, we are trained now to be like, oh, we're so different from one another. Even though we have like 99% of things that connect us to each other. Mm. And I just wish that we focus more on the things that connect us rather than the things that make us different from one another. Because the things that make us different from one another are there for a good reason. They're there to make us interesting. Otherwise, it would be really boring if we're all the same. If we're all the same colors, same thinking, same culture, same language, same food. Like that would be a really boring world. Mm. Yeah so many things to hope for from the world and i just want us to start relating more to each other and focusing more on what make us similar i guess but mm. professionally i just would like yeah i would like to see more diversity in the casting opportunities i think mm. that's just my one sentence there should say all <laughs> <laughs> yeah we are right there with you right there with you yeah all right Adam, this has been so wonderful. We can't tell you how blessed we feel to have the opportunity to talk to you. And you've just been great. Oh, bless you, Nadia. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you so much. That was a lovely way of expressing and putting that. Thank you so much. I loved speaking with all of you. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you so Thank much, you. Anna. Thank you, Adam. To find out more about Adam and to donate to the fundraiser he mentioned in support of his friend, John, please check out the links in this episode's show notes. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Zachary Fall, Ben Weaver-Hinks, and me, Nadia Cavell. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.